You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Hi, welcome to Meaning of Life TV. Uh, my name is Arya Cohen-Wade, and I'm your host today on Culturally Determined. And my guest is Christopher White. Uh, Christopher, could you introduce yourself? Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, I'm the national correspondent for uh, Crux, uh, which is uh, a U.S. news site that covers uh, the Vatican and the Catholic Church. Uh, and uh, I believe we're here to talk about some issues that are kind of pertinent. <laughs> yeah, so um, the church has been in the news more than usual in the past couple months, and I wanted to, uh, yeah, just kind of learn more about what is happening from someone who knows a lot. So thank you for uh, coming on today. So I guess kind of my first question is like, okay, so there, most people probably know that there's a new or at least new version of an old scandal uh, that sparked a crisis in the church. Um, I mean, the, fir- the first that I read about it was the release of this grand jury report in Pennsylvania, like a month or two ago. And that's, is that what, and then like more and more stuff started coming out. So it reminded me a little bit of like what happened at the beginning of, I, me, of me too, with like Weinstein was the first, and then suddenly all this other stuff started coming out. Like, is that an apt comparison or has thing are these things not connected? Yeah, so uh, I would actually go back a, a little further. I mean, it's it's been a long summer for the Catholic Church. Uh, in late June, uh, the uh, Archdiocese of New York and the Archdiocese of Washington uh, announced that uh, the former Archbishop of Washington, uh, Cardinal Theodore McCarrick, uh, had been credibly accused of abusing uh, a minor uh, back in the 1970s while he was still a priest uh, in the Archdiocese of New York. Uh, now, McCarrick, you have to understand, uh, became one of the most important figures in the U.S. Catholic Church in the, the, the last quarter of uh, the last century. Uh, he uh, traveled the world on behalf of both uh, the U.S. Catholic Church, the Vatican, and also the U.S. government, a major player. Uh, and so when these uh, allegations came to light, it uh, sort of unleashed a number of other allegations against him, uh, and we've now uh, had multiple reports spanning uh, five decades uh, that this uh, prominent U.S. figure had uh, serially abused uh, seminarians throughout his uh, church career, uh, and that led Pope Francis to accept his resignation from the College of Cardinals, which is nearly unprecedented. There's only one other comparable occasion in, in all of Catholic history. Uh, and so that, and the, the uh, College of Cardinals is the body that elects a new pope when the old pope exactly. dies so or retires. 120 people around the world, very prestigious. They're often sort of referred to as the princes of the church. Uh, and uh, so for, for him to be stripped of that title uh, was rather humiliating. So that was sort of phase one. <laughs> phase two has been this Pennsylvania grand jury report that you reference. Uh, which is the sort of product of many uh, years of a thorough investigation done by the attorney general there in Pennsylvania, Josh Shapiro. Uh, and that report uh, released on August 14th uh, chronicled seven decades of abuse by over a thousand Catholic priests, uh, sorry, over 300 Catholic priests uh, and over uh, 1,000 victims. Uh, now, uh, most of those uh, allegations were historic uh, uh, rather than current new issues. Uh, wow. But what it exposed was both, uh, you know, systematic cover up 
which then prompted the U.S. bishops uh, in this country to say they would take a comprehensive look uh, at sex abuse uh, and its and their handling of it throughout the whole country, and particularly looking at how their policies do or don't effectively hold bishops accountable, not just for abuse, but for cover-up, which is, in a sense, the the next frontier. I mean, back in 2002, when the Boston Globe first did its major reporting on abuse within the church, you know, the bishops adopted what was known as the Dallas Charter. It's sort of, it's global, it's sort of national procedures for the protection of minors. Uh, But what we've since found out is that policy, while considered widely effective, for protecting minors didn't actually hold any sort of authority uh, for holding bishops accountable. And so that's what we're left to deal with now. Uh, and then I guess the third phase, if I'm not getting too far ahead of ourselves, is uh, just two weeks after that uh, report came out, Pope Francis traveled to Ireland for an already previously scheduled visit. Uh, and Ireland has been one of the countries in the world that has been most devastated by the Catholic sexual abuse crisis. And so that was already sort of expected to take front and center on this trip. Uh, and while Pope Francis was on the ground in, in Ireland, his former uh, envoy to the United States, uh, Archbishop Carlo Maria Vigano, who was you know, effectively the, the Pope's ambassador to the U.S. from 2000, uh, and uh, uh, 11 or 12 to 2017, uh, sent this, released this 11-page testimonial sort of faulting the Pope uh, for his own uh, sort of, for being complicit, he alleged, uh, in the cover-up of Cardinal Theodore McCarrick's uh, behavior over the years, saying that the Pope knew about this and allowed him to exercise active ministry even so. Uh, and he, you know, in this wide, you know, rambling 11-page document, you know, he sort of named 36 major uh, churchmen, uh, saying they were all complicit in it as well. Now, the, it's important to note that document has been the subject of much controversy and, and questionable veracity. But even so, it fueled uh, this already heated, uh, you know, turbulent debate within the church uh, over sexual abuse. So that's that's, you know, the past three months uh, in a nutshell. Yeah, that was uh, a succinct and very illuminating summary of everything that's happened that clarified some stuff for me. So, you know, when I, I guess as someone looking from the outside who isn't like really interested in what's happening in the Catholic church, but also kind of likes to know what's happening in the world, you know, I probably, I didn't pay any attention to this McGarrick uh, story when it first broke. You know, I don't know who the powerful bishops are or cardinals are in the world, so I didn't really pay attention to that. But then the, the Pennsylvania thing, uh, the grand jury report came out, and that was like, that was big news. And then the, um, and then when, um, Vigano, is that, that's how you pronounce it? Vigano, uh, yeah. When his letter came out, a lot, it seemed, um, like that was a item that immediately became like, politicized within between like the conservative Catholic intellectuals and liberal Catholic intellectuals that I pay attention to where the conservatives were kind of cheering it on because they don't particularly like the reforms that Francis has instituted and the liberals were casting down on it because they do like those particular reforms. Is is that accurate? Yeah, I I think it's very fair to say that uh, the Vigano testimonial has become uh, politicized and, and weaponized within the varying factions in the Catholic church. Uh, so it, it's no secret that when Vigano was in the United States, 
Uh, he was very much conceived, uh, you know, perceived as an ally of uh, conservative Catholics. Uh, and there's a whole sort of litany of things I can go into for that, uh, but I'll, I'll, I'll spare you that. Uh, and most of the folks he named in a critical way in his uh, missive uh, would be seen as fairly progressive types within the church, or if not progressive, at least allies of Francis. Uh, and so the, the criticism here is that the issue of sex abuse, of course, has become sort of a, a cover uh, to effectively finally get revenge on a pope that many, you know, did not like. Now, whether or not that's a fair analysis, uh, you know, I, I don't think that's entirely true. I think uh, you, you do see outrage from both the left and the right within the church over the issue of sexual abuse. Uh, but for those within the church that have already found this pope difficult, uh, this has certainly fanned the flames of their outrage to him and given uh, new momentum toward their cause, to be sure. Um, so one interesting piece I read, which we'll link to was in, uh, piece that Elizabeth Brunig at the Washington Post wrote. Um, it was an interview with a seminarian who was going on the record for the first time as having been, um, sexually assaulted, I guess we could say by, um, McGarrick. Um, and it's kind of the way he, I think this happened in the early eighties. Um, and he, and McGarrick was the, like, was in charge of the, of the seminary. Um, and actually I only realized afterwards that I, I grew up like very, very close to, um, I, within the archdiocese of Newark. I grew up in a suburb of Newark. Um, and, uh, Seton Hall university is in the small town where I, where I grew up, South Orange, New Jersey. Yeah. So this was all happening. Uh, in my backyard without, <laughs> where I had no, you know, no knowledge of it whatsoever. But it, it was kind of like the way the seminarian, uh, described it 35 years later was like, it was an open secret that, um, McCarrick was acting this way. Um, but you kind of, they, the young seminarians kind of thought that they had to, uh, you know, play along with it or kind of give in somewhat in order to, um, like be under his place, like directly under his tutelage or the, he would have to directly, uh, promote each one from a seminarian to a priest. So it, it was like it, just a, a very large amount of power was in the hands of, uh, this one figure. And then there were a number of, you know, young men in their twenties, uh, who had to like navigate around that. It, it was this like an extraordinary situation you think of this like one predatory person uh, or accused, <laughs> accused to be predatory or, did this kind of thing happen more often? Yeah, I mean, I mean if, if you read the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report, you will read just gruesome, horrific details of abuse of minors at the hands of priests. Uh, I mean, you know, both uh, toward, you know, young men and, and young women. Uh, and, but the McCarrick situation, I think, has gotten so much attention because of the fact that uh, not only was he such a senior churchman in this country and across the world, uh, but he, by the time he retired as Cardinal Archbishop of Washington in 2006, he had ordained more priests than any bishop in this country. Uh, and so his reach was, was wide. Uh, and so many people had sort of 
come under his, uh, you know, whether it be his tutelage or at least into his orbit and was influenced by him. And he had a particular way, as you, as you note, of uh, sort of grooming these individuals. I mean, he would ask seminarians to call him Uncle Ted or Uncle Teddy. Uh, and he, he, you know, we've now seen some of these notes that have been published that he's written them in very personal terms, uh, the sort of language that you wouldn't expect an archbishop to use uh, with a, a young, you know, young 20 something year old. Uh, but it was this real abuse of power uh, that went on for for decades. And I think that's why you've seen such outrage uh, on the part of lay Catholics who have said, you know, how the hell did this guy manage to get promotion after promotion after promotion within the church to, you know, President Bush right after he was elected in Washington, his very first public event uh, was he goes over to the archbishop's house for dinner. You know, he leaves the White House and goes to his house. Huh. You know, it, it's it's this sort of, you know, sort of deference that, in a sense, the world showed to this guy, and yet no one would dare speak out about what he was doing in private uh, that I think people have just been so scandalized and, and hurt by. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is this is a minor point, but in the, uh, the essay that Brunig wrote, um, the uh, sexual assault happens at the at McGarrick's uh, beach house at the Jersey Shore, and he kind of like invites. It seems like kind of a regular thing. He invites the seminarians to go and like sw- you know swim, and and uh, the one who was testifying uh, said that you know he tried to w- avoid McGarrick as much as possible, but McGarrick kind of forced him to just robe in front of him, and then later groped him um, on the beach. And I was <laughs> I was just thinking like you know I I grew up in this same place in middle class background. I didn't really know anyone who had a Jersey Shore beach house. Like that, that just like struck me as, as a weird detail. And I was like, why don't you know? And then I guess in my head, I, I was thinking like, well, aren't like priests supposed to be like living in poverty essentially and kind of just like just doing the church stuff and like devote, they, you know, they give their lives fully to the church. And then I, I posted this on Twitter. Someone pointed out, you know, uh, priests do not take a vow of poverty and, uh, you know, kind of, they make a middle class salary. So it was possible, but I don't know. There was just, that was just weird in the, a weird detail to me that he would have this like luxury that was probably somewhat expensive. And yet yeah, he- it's, so the, the, there are two, uh, two points to make here. One specifically about this beach house. Um, you know, in, in 1981 is when McCarrick is made Bishop of Metuchen, New Jersey. Uh, and soon after he arrives down there, uh, he convinced, convinced the diocesan financial council, to buy this sort of, you know, it's described as a fairly modest uh, house a few blocks from the, you know, about five blocks from, from the beach uh, as sort of a retreat house for priests. That's not entirely uncommon for dioceses to own properties, that, you know, that priests can use to, to get away or that special sort of spiritual retreats can take place at. Uh, so, I, I mean, a request like that probably wouldn't have raised major sort of, you know, eyebrows at the time. But looking back, um at, particularly at what happened in that beach house and how he used it, you know, I think people will probably and hopefully, you know, ask serious questions when future suggestions like that are raised when a bishop wants to buy property. Uh, but, you know, what happened in that beach house, of course, was not just that he would lure young seminarians and, and boys out there. Uh, he would often uh, have one of them share the bed with him. Uh, and that's where this, you know, much of this... Uh, abuse happened was with some young seminarians being forced to, to share a bed with him. 
Uh, the other thing, though, you talk about the money involved in this. Later on in McCarrick's career, uh, you know, he he started what was known as the Papal Foundation, uh, and it was an organization where very wealthy Americans were solicited to give money uh, to, you know, now they pledge to give uh, $100,000 a year for at least a period of 10 years, so effectively at least a million dollars to be a member of the Papal Foundation. And this is money that uh, the U.S. bishops have control over, you know, a, a, a board of trustees that McCarrick started and he, he managed uh, during the height of, of his career. And this money would be used to fund the pet projects of the, the Pope. Uh, and so there are multiple stories of the way in which McCarrick would use this purse string that he held onto uh, to open doors uh, uh, in Rome. Uh, so it goes to show you how he, you know, used his popularity to, to sort of take in funds here stateside and then go to Rome to sort of advance his cause. And, of course, they would accept his money, uh, which, of course, is why uh, many suspect that for years he was able to operate uh, the way he did and his career just continued to advance. Yeah. So, you know, when the when the first um, stories broke in the early 2000s about this, I think a lot of people kind of thought like there were specific things about the Catholic Church that made a situation like this develop. Like it's extremely hierarchical. It's an, it's 100% male in its leadership. You know, a very uh, there's a lot of uh, there's always been like protecting the organization kind of belief. You know, et cetera, et cetera. And then uh, you know, 15, 16 years later, uh, the Me Too stories start coming out, and we see that. Oh, these type of predatory men were operating in many other uh, areas of uh, of our culture. You know, uh, it was apparently an open secret in Hollywood that Harvey Weinstein uh, treated young women badly, um, but no one was able to challenge him because he was so powerful and he ran. Uh, you know, he was a very successful person in terms of making movies and made a lot of people rich. And you know, people just kind of ignored his. Uh, bad behavior. They probably didn't know the full extent of it, but they were, you know, they kind of excused it. That's just Harvey being Harvey. Um, so I, do you think there's, has there, and then the, but then this, the, the church abuse stories are like coming back again. So I don't know. Do you see that? Is there something about the organization of the Catholic church that encourages this kind of both behavior and cover up? Or is this always finding out that maybe this is just something about, uh, Human nature and male nature, in particular, and there are some there's some percentage of men who want to take advantage of uh, other people, weaker people sexually, and this is like a problem we have to combat in, in every area of life. Yeah, I, I think one of the important things that you've seen take place uh, in, in the past few months is, as Pope Francis has uh, attempted to to address this this crisis, uh, not just in the U.S. but of course you know other countries, particularly Chile. Uh, is dealing with its own sex abuse crisis at the moment, and he's spent a lot of time uh, addressing that particular situation. Uh, he's identified that this isn't just about sex, but this is, as you know, uh, you know, deeply and intricately tied to the abuse of power. Uh, and the the term that he uses a lot is clericalism. And you know, you can debate the meaning of clericalism and, and what it entails, but you know, the main thing for for the Pope is that you know, it, it's this. His critique is of a culture uh, of, uh, as you know, you know, uh, of men with power, single men, uh, who protect each other and the institution uh, at the expense of, of victims. 
uh, and the sort of systematic cover-up that has gone on and on for decades. Uh, now, is there something particular about the Catholic Church? Uh, after the 2002 revelations uh, in the Boston Globe, uh, John Jay uh, in Manhattan did a, a major sort of independent external study to sort of like what caused uh, this issue of sexual abuse. And, of course, uh, there were a myriad of th- things that they sort of found uh, but the, the major sort of takeaways was that it was, you know, of course, psychological, uh, sort of issues with the abusers themselves, uh, and, uh, a culture that facilitated this type of, of cover up. Uh, now in recent weeks, you've had a lot of debate over, is it over celibacy, you know, is the priestly celibacy, does that contribute or, or fuel, uh, this sort of behavior, uh, does, uh, um, is this a question of the churches um, of, of gays in the priesthood? You know that some want to say this is why they're acting out uh, on minors. Uh, look, I, I'm no psychologist. I don't. I don't. I, I'm just a reporter, so I don't have the answers to, to, to those questions. Uh, but I, I think it was an important step for Pope Francis to broaden the conversation uh, beyond just sex abuse, but to also abuse of power and to connect the dots there, because that's been a, a missing part of the conversation, really, up until now. Yeah, that's been a, that's been a big debate since Me Too um, broke. Uh, you know, is this about sex? Is this about power? Or a, com- a combination thereof? And I, no one really has the answer. But I think the probably before it was like, in the, the first iteration of the Catholic Church scandal was probably like, well, these people are perverts. They have this, you know compulsion to, to do this thing and that's really bad and then like we'll t- you know throw out the bad apples and now it seems like so many there's so many times where a powerful man abuses a uh, less powerful woman and we think it's not just about getting off <laughs> it's also about um demeaning someone else uh, uh, exercising power over someone else etc um so l- let's talk a little bit more about about the letter that Vigano sent um sure. are the what are people saying? Like, are people saying like this is likely, this is not likely? Uh, some truth, some mistruth. Or are there are there people who are saying like this is just you know invented out of whole cloth? Or what is what is the current idea on, on the accuracy of this? Yeah, I mean the the, the response has of course been varied. Uh, so the the letter comes out. The Pope is in Ireland, and you know the next day he leaves to go back to Rome. Uh, and as he historically does on the flight back from any of his trips, he holds a press conference. Uh, and of course, everyone is just waiting to find out how he's going to respond to the Vigano letter. Uh, and the Pope gives an answer, uh, that certainly, you know, surprised some people where he says, I will not say anything about this. I think the letter speaks for itself. Uh, your journalist, uh, you know, you have the skills at your disposal to see if this actually holds up. And that's the only thing I'll say. And so he's maintained his silence on it since then. Uh, now, some people, you know, defend him on this because they believe that he was ambushed, uh, you know, try, backed into a corner to, um, by, by those that have an axe to grind. Uh, and others, of course, are eager for answers uh, and feel like, it, you know, as the, the leader of a church of 1.3, 1.4 billion Catholics around the globe, Something this serious demands answers. Uh, in recent weeks, the Vatican has said it would be issuing some clarifications about that letter. 
what really at the heart of this letter is the question uh, over Cardinal Theodore McCarrick uh, and the claim by Archbishop Vigano that in either 2008 or 2009, Pope Benedict uh, uh, implemented sanctions against McCarrick, told him to keep uh, uh, to refrain from exercising public ministry. Uh, and of course, McCarrick uh, at that time was a pretty vocal and you know prominent figure in public life. Uh, and Vigano goes on to claim that when Pope Francis was elected, that he lifted those sanctions uh, against uh, against McCarrick. Uh, I think most, if you just look at the the five years that are sort of under the microscope here. You can see that McCarrick kept a very public profile. I mean, the irony, of course, here is that both Pope Benedict and Vigano himself are, are documented in multiple photographs and videos in public settings with McCarrick during the same time. And on one, one such occasion, Vigano uh, is awarding McCarrick uh, with a prize in a public location. So I, I think most people have said these claims of, of these sanctions don't really hold up. Now, I think what most people are inclined to say happened during that time is that uh, Pope Benedict either directly or indirectly uh, told McCarrick uh, in a sort, some sort of private way uh, to keep a low profile, uh, but there was no formal sanctions. Uh, so, you know, that's the that's the million dollar question at this point is, you know, what do these sanctions look like if they existed? How formal or informal were they uh, and who knew what and when? Uh, but in terms of, you know, canon law, um, you know, which is, of course, that the church's governing law, uh, uh, there was very little Francis seemingly could do to lift those sanctions if they were private. Uh, you know, he was probably unaware of them. Right. And there's some, yeah. So the contention is whether Francis was told about, you know, whether like the, you know, folder was opened for, for Francis so he could see the accusations against Carrick. Uh, Has Benedict spoken publicly on this? Well, when Vigano first released his letter, uh, one, one uh, journalist in Rome uh, said that the accounts in, in that letter had been confirmed by Benedict. Uh, and then Archbishop George Ganswine, who is Benedict's uh, sort of personal assistant, has denied that uh, Benedict knew any uh, anything about these accounts or would or would uh, be speaking on that. So uh, the mo- most people will say that Benedict uh, has not been in- involved in this process and will not be involved uh, because he's you know consistently pledged not to involve himself in in the workings of this papacy. Yeah, so this is kind of an unprecedented situation with, uh, you know, it was very unusual for Benedict to retire or step down and then for exactly. him to be uh, you know, a key witness. How, how odd it is to have a retired pope and a living pope all living on the same 108 acres. <laughs> um, so I think when, when this story first broke about the letter, um, I saw at least one person, I can't remember who, on Twitter say, if this is true, Pope Francis has to resign. I don't know. So on Twitter, you can say anything. <laughs> is is there any talk about about something like that? Well, it's not just Twitter. In the eleven page missive 
Uh, Vigano himself calls for Francis's resignation, saying it's up to him to be an example to the world on this issue. Uh, I think there was, of course, some early chatter of could the Pope survive this if this is true. Uh, at this point, I think uh, the letter has been rather, uh, you know, an, enough. there's an enough suspicion over the letter that folks don't see this as a question of, of whether or not the Pope will resign. The question, of course, though, is is this. Pope Francis was elected in 2013 on a reform mandate to clean up the inner workings of the Catholic Church. The number one issue, of course, uh, for the church to have any moral credibility in public life uh, is whether or not it can protect you know, minors and, and get this issue right. Uh, and so the issue at hand now is how much credibility does the pope have on the issue of sex abuse? And will he be able, into however long he has left in his papacy, uh, to actually bring about meaningful reform in this area. And, and that remains an open question. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, yeah, it seems like, uh, the, 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 the mandate to reform the church, I, I, like, how, how would you, how would you assess his, how, whether he's done that or not? So the mandate to reform, was largely, uh, especially in the early, the early months of the Francis papacy, was, you know, folks thought the reform would be cleaning up the Roman Curia, meaning the bureaucracy of the Vatican. So getting its finances in order, you know, making it, the Vatican a more transparent place, hopefully bringing in more, more lay people and women into critical roles of leadership. Uh, and on those issues, I think most people said the Pope has, would, the Pope has pledged uh, and offered, you know, promising words, uh, but there's still reform, uh, that needs to take place and, and to date those promises have been unfulfilled. But the, the reform that I think most people, uh, were originally, uh, unexpecting and has certainly been the case has been the PR reform. You know, in his first year, the Pope, you know, is, uh, lands on both sort of the cover of Rolling Stone as their, you know, and the advocate as the person of the year. Uh, just the, the, the general wave of, of popularity and, and newfound interest in the Pope and by extension the Catholic Church has been a reform in and of itself in, in some, in some manner. Uh, and now you, you know, he's past the five year mark of his papacy and we've seen those numbers taper off a bit. Uh, and so it's a question of, of how long that reform can last. Uh, but there's no doubt about it. This is a pope that both Catholics and non-Catholics really like. And most politicians in this country uh, would kill to have uh, his uh, his approval numbers. <laughs> um, are people... Okay, so there were reforms that maybe were expected uh, when Benedict uh, left the papacy. Um that maybe haven't happened uh, now that there's another wave of um, sex abuse allegations. Is there any, are people calling for reform? Is there any chance there'll be some kind of change that could prevent this or, or not? Well, Pope Francis just uh, last week in an unprecedented move uh, said that this February, he was calling the head of every Bishop's conference uh, around the world to Rome at the end of February uh, to address the global crisis of uh, the protection of minors and vulnerable adults. 
Uh, I mean, that in itself has a lot of promise. It is, in a sense, probably his the highest stakes gamble of his papacy, uh, because if he gets this right, uh, he is can, he can do what few popes in the past you know century have been able to do, which is actually properly deal with the issue of sexual abuse within the church. However, if he gets it wrong, then much of everything else he does uh, will be viewed uh, through that light, and it will continue to cast a shadow over uh, the rest of uh, his papacy. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's it's going to be great theater at the very least. Um, maybe a final question. Is there any, you know, there's some reforms that uh, liberal Catholics have long wanted that maybe would interact with the sex abuse scandals, things like uh, the ordination of women or letting uh, gay men uh, openly serve in the uh, priesthood. Um, and then there's other things that are like culture war type things like uh, abortion and gay marriage. Is there any chance for some kind of change on along those ends or would it be more like a, a bureaucratic reform that is, is that most likely to happen? Well, just a few months into his papacy, uh, Pope Francis said five words, which, uh, in a sense, uh, may be what, you know, his most popular slogan today, who am I to judge? Right. When he's asked a question about, you know, uh, gay priests in the Catholic Church. Uh, now, some could say, you know, uh, could rightly argue that his uh, expression there has been taken out of context and, and, and sort of used as a blanket statement for any moral issue in the, in the Catholic Church today. Uh, that, that's certainly, uh, that's certainly true. Uh, in terms of reform on those sort of neuralgic issues, uh, in terms of women, the Pope has said, uh, he's gonna, he's commissioned, he has commissioned, uh, a, a group to study the possibility of women's being ordained as deacons within the church. Not as priests, but as deacons. Uh, so we're, we're waiting to hear what that, the results of that. And what, and what is a, what is a deacon? A, a deacon cannot sort of celebrate mass, uh, but a, a deacon can say, you know, preach at mass and, and serve as a, a, an elevated ministerial role within the church, uh, but cannot sort of offer uh, the sacraments, sort of confession, mass, marriage, things like that. Uh, so that would, I mean, if that were to come to fruition, most people would say, you know, he certainly moved the goalpost uh, for, for, for women there. Uh, on the issue of, you know, sort of, you know, can gay priests openly celebrate, uh, op- be openly gay? Uh, well, there are many gay priests that are openly gay, uh, in, in, in this country and around the world. Uh, the question, of course, is what do you mean by gay? You know, many, most of those that are openly gay would be ones that would say, I'm, I'm, I'm gay, but I'm, uh, celibate in, 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 in my priesthood. Uh, and that's actually not a decision really that the, the Pope weighs in on. That's much more their local bishops or their religious superior if they're part of a, an order. Uh, on the neuralgic issues, I mean, the Pope has been pretty firm on issues of abortion and gay marriage, uh, that these are sort of closed teachings. Uh, but what he has been open to is how do we have a more human pastoral response to those in either irregular situations, as he's often sort of termed it, uh, or sort of the, the messiness uh, of life, as, as he likes to say. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I um, I thank you for coming on today and uh, right. sharing your knowledge, uh, which is extensive about, about all these complex matters. Um, so if people are looking for more of your work online, where can they find it? 
Uh, you should follow us at uh, cruxnow.com, C-R-U-X-N-O-W.com, uh, and then uh, follow me on Twitter. My handle is at C-W-White212, so at C-W-W-H-I-T-E-212. Okay, cool. Um, well, thank you again for taking the time. Uh, thank you to all of our viewers and listeners. Uh, and you can uh, subscribe to this show on uh, YouTube, on whatever platform you receive your podcasts on and lots of other places. Uh, So uh, thanks. And we'll see you next time. Before you go, a quick message from the suits at meaning of life TV, meaning of life will always be free for you to watch and listen to. And we don't even go the NPR route of guilting you into donating during pledge week, but we do have a small request. If you enjoy meaning of life programming, rate and review us on iTunes. The iTunes algorithm weighs positive reviews heavily So taking a few minutes to rate and review us will help more people find out about our shows. Also, of course, we encourage you to subscribe to our Twitter and Facebook feeds. Thank you.